0: When the book, How to Make White People Laugh, landed on my desk, it fulfilled its promise immediately. The book's bright yellow cover and bold title made me crack up. Iranian-American comedian Nagin Farsad is the brains behind the new book, which turns out to be a breezy memoir about identity, politics, and also dating and other stuff. Farsad is known for her work on a subversive poster campaign that countered Islamophobic ads put up in the NYC subway system in 2014 responding to bigotry with sarcasm is Farsad's style. She's also the director of the 2013 film The Muslims Are Coming, which follows a group of Muslim comedians as they tour the United States doing stand-up. I talked with Nagin about her new book and the importance of learning history from multiple perspectives. Nagin, your book just came out. It's called How to Make White People Laugh. And it's about a bunch of different things. It's about comedy, identity. It's a memoir about your childhood, but also about TED Talks and uh, just like funny stories dating in England. It's, it kind of feels to me like it's a series. It's like the whole book is tangents and all the tangents are really funny. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And one of the, one of the tangents that really... Uh, I think is really important and that we're going to talk about today is you talk a lot about media in the book and sort of, and who makes our media and what stories media tells. Um, So I was hoping to talk to you about, you have this chapter in the book called Do Immigrants Spit Out More Patriotic Babies? Mm -hmm. And you start out with a story of uh, going to summer camp at Yale when you were in high school. I was hoping you could just sort of tell us a little bit about that story for people that haven't read your book. um, You were somehow a super patriotic and super nerdy kid.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, just to put that into context, I was president of the debate team and vice president of the theater club. So I was a very special crossover dork. And um, I, uh, I I reveled in debating and doing plays. Um, and, and anyways, it was just very nerdy. And uh, the summer after my junior year of high school, um, I ended up going to uh, a summer camp uh, at Yale, which where basically basically we wrote term papers like for fun. That's the kind of camp it was. It was a camp where you wrote term papers. And, um, you know, the, I, I was there with one of my best friends who's a Romanian immigrant, Anka And, uh, and I, my roommate that was assigned to me there was this Indian American girl named Kieran. And we, the Kieran and I were talking about how there's we didn't have an American flag in our dorm room, but like we both had American flags in our bedrooms at home. And we were like, Oh, you know, just to like spruce up the place, we should try and get our hands on an American flag. And we couldn't really find one, you know, there aren't that many like flag stores, uh, on the streets. And, uh, and so we decided to staple a bunch of pieces of paper together and then draw an American flag. And then put, we said, and we put it up in the dorm room and we had the Romanian immigrant take a picture of the Iranian American Muslim and the Indian American, uh, pledging allegiance to this really actually hideous flag because uh, we were not very good at drawing it, um, and. And it just is one of those things that you sort of do as a teenager. Uh, but we were uber patriotic teenagers, really, um, like uh, followed the American political system, the news, the elections, all of that stuff as teenagers, and uh, really cared about all of the outcomes, and really, you know, um, and 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 when we debated, uh, we kind of did these like. Debate D- these debates had no real consequence, right? Because we were in high school and nobody cares what a, what a sixteen year old has to say. Uh, but we were just so you know entrenched and and heated about it. Um, and I think that part of it is because our parents were immigrants, who were always teaching us that like. Hey, you know this country you're in, We didn't get to grow up here. You better appreciate it. And so um and and we did. it's it's something that I think is instilled in a lot of first generation um, kids who are children of immigrants.
0: Yeah, I think that's so interesting because there's this conception that people have an attachment to, the united states because of their history here because you know your family spans back generations or somehow you're linked in some way to the the origin story of the country but the story that you tell there frames it totally differently like why do you feel like you had such an attachment to america and patriotism when your family had only been here for a couple decades
1: yeah, well, I also had a lot to compare it to. I mean, I, we would go back to Iran um, for summers and stuff like that, and I knew, you know, my entire family, extended family, is in Iran. We were the only ones in the United States, and as and I was the only one who had been born in the United States, um, and uh, and so I kind of reserved this very strange. Uh, position in the in the larger family of like the American cousin and I I would go back to Iran and have a wonderful time um, and I talk about what it's like to go back to Iran and in how to make white people laugh but I I but one are the things that happens I think when you're when you go back to a country that you know might be in the throes of war as Iran was in the 80s or might be um, you know, just not as economically stable as the United States or uh, just not, you know, or maybe may repressive as Iran is with the Islamic regime, you compare your life constantly. And and I just thought, oh, my God, I have I, I really lucked out. Like I just by just being born in this one country, uh, my life is, is going to turn out with I'm going to have like a thousand more opportunities than my cousins. And that's not fair. And it made me feel very guilty and also extraordinarily grateful. And I think because you can constantly make that comparison, uh, it makes you just hold on to the country you have so much tighter. um, And like with that much more just love.
0: Um, It's also interesting because your, so your background and your experiences, I mean, you're not like a, a jingoistic patriot who's voting for Trump, not by a long shot. <laughs> you, know, you, you, have, you have a master's degree in, in African-American studies and another one in public policy. And so I'm wondering, so as a, when you were that super patriotic teenager, what was your conception of American history? Did you remember learning about American history and were you critical of, of the country then? Or did your criticism and your sort of critical eye on our history come later?
1: Well, I mean, one of my favorite classes was uh, was American history uh, in uh, I think it was our junior year of high school or senior year, and uh, and you know, and I went on so I had a degree. You know, I, I double majored in government and theater in as an undergrad uh, before getting those master's degrees, which like all these degrees for a comedian, uh, they're a requirement. Um, and I, uh, I I always I. I was very – I think in high school, like, I definitely went through, like, lots of identity confusion. I went in – I was in a high school that had, you know, a a really large uh, Mexican population. And uh, and I longed to be a part of the Mexican-Americans. They had people like Cesar Chavez and they had Ranchero music and they had issues and icons. And all the teachers could pronounce their names. The teachers would be, you know, go down the attendance list like Aurelia, Rodrigo, you know, and they would, like, roll their R's. There was this whole, like – extreme recognition of, uh, of this like ethnic group and I just I longed for that because when it came to me they just didn't know what to do with me they'd be like McGee like they couldn't pronounce my name one teacher called me Noodle uh, she called me Noodle <laughs> and then she laughed and laughed she thought it was so funny and I was just like that's the wrong we're a rice based people it doesn't even make sense but um w- and and I and she ended up calling me NF for the rest of the semester which was actually also traumatizing because uh, she's just, just like she was just like, "I just can't pronounce your name, and that was that wait um, when you when you and... told that story,
0: I thought it was maybe a substitute teacher, but you're saying that was a teacher for an entire no, semester
1: it, for an entire semester in the class The class was it was driver's Ed combined with Sex Ed. We had both of those classes in the same hour. And so the first thirty minutes would be like, you know, this is how you do a three point turnabout. And then the second half hour would be like, and now let us turn to the backseat of the car where the boning happens. Um, and so then we learned about sex, but it was a, yeah, it was a full semester of this woman calling me NF. But, um, I think, you know, I, early on, I, I, I longed to be Mexican. And then one, I think like everybody, I was moved by the history, um, of black Americans and how could you not be moved. Uh, and I knew that the black, I identified with the black struggle and I wanted to fight for the black struggle and level the playing field. Um, and then, in um, and, even though I knew that the black struggle was not my struggle, um, I sort of was like, "Eh, close enough." You know what I mean? And I think a lot of underpopulated uh, ethnic like minorities do that because they, um, they, they, they just they think, "Okay, well, that thing isn't my thing." I'm, you know, I'm Pakistani or I'm Indian or I'm Sri Lankan or I'm uh, Filipino or whatever it is. Uh, and you look at, you know, you look at this kind of well-developed. Minority culture, and you think that's not my culture, but I'll take it. and uh, And I think a lot of people like me do that um, until they sort of figure out what they can do. and uh, And I think a lot of that had to do with you know me delve, diving deep into American history and just being jarred um, by by you know African American history.
0: That's something really interesting you point out about how you, were, you felt sort of a connection to the black civil rights movement, in part because there wasn't a lot of history that you learned about the history of Iranian-American people in the United States. You didn't have your own icons to look up to who are Iranian-American. You didn't have your own movements to look up to that were Iranian-American. And, yeah. and that's such an important part of forming identity, your own political identity
1: yeah i think yeah, i think that's why it you know it took me you know many degrees uh in a lot of stand up to kind of get to where i am right now because um because i didn't have those things like you know if you grow up on friends you're sort of like i wish i was aunt jennifer aniston you know and uh, and that doesn't mean that's that's not tenable for a little iranian american girl um and uh, and so i think you know you sort of like dip your toe in a lot of different waters because there's just nothing for you to really hold on to for very long
0: well and that speaks to the importance of having sort of histories that do recognize the um, significance of of different types of people in the United States, you know, so I, I often talk to people about like, what's the problem with having history that's really focused on white dudes? What's the problem with that? And one of the big problems is that it really leaves out people who aren't those white dudes and helps and makes it harder for everyone else to situate themselves and understand um what you can do with your life and what you can do in our society. If you don't have those that those role models to look to and that history to look to, it can make you feel like, well, who who am I to to aspire to something different?
1: Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think the lack of uh, role models, you know, and, and the thing is, like when you, the, the stuff that was available for me was a totally – uh, like off-putting you know because you would look in mainstream media and this and this is like I went to grad school in the aftermath of 9/11 and you look at mainstream media you you would say okay there's Muslims they're uh, you know they're they're dusty dudes wielding um, ak-47s in the desert um, and then there's these like women women in black shrouds that look like they're just floating uh, and uh, and then there's and then whenever they showed like here's a depiction of Islam, It's like a mass of people doing a prayer that looks like a CrossFit workout and it just looks so like intense and it's made to, look intense it's presented as like look at these muslims they're so intensely praying you know <laughs> like praying is suddenly like re- like a very bad thing and uh and those all of the the depictions sort of meant nothing to me you know they didn't they I did, didn't res- resonate with me at all and i think part of that is that we we like to conflate like we like to think of the middle east as one big brown violent blob like we don't want to recognize that there's different countries we're just sort of like oh tunisia no thank you I'll take my hamburger with ketchup, please. And, you know, we just don't have like a kind of understanding of, of nuance, um, for, for that part of the world. And I think, um, for me, that was, uh, that was what I had to go with. Um, in, in, and I think part of like being out there and making, uh, movies and doing stand up and whatever is, um, kind of, forging an identity, you know, for myself because I wasn't, I was given nothing really positive to hold on to from the media.
0: Well, that's something that your book, How to Make White People Laugh, really talks about a lot is sort of who's telling the stories in our society and how are they, how do their identities shape the stories that we see? And one of the, one of the examples that you point out, which is something that comes up a lot in our culture, sadly, is how violent acts are framed immediately in their aftermath by the media that's reporting on those violent acts. And when um, an act of political violence is committed by a white person, it's often called you know, an act of violence, violence. or a, tragic, a tragedy, something like that. When it's committed by a brown person the spin is immediately, the way it is framed is immediately terrorism. Terrorism,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't like to, you know, and it's funny because there are plenty of political and religious motivations that go around in these other um, acts of violence and I list a couple of examples in the book. <laughs> it's funny because now that we're talking about it, it, doesn't, it sounds like it's not a, comedy book but it is um even when i talk about like violence uh and um and so so we sort of we you know for whatever reason we have just like a different set of rules when it comes to talking about violence that comes from a brown person you know like the the charleston shootings were you know were motivated by a certain you know Um, socio political and religious ideology, and we should call that out, but we, we really don't call that out. Uh, but if that had been a brown person, they would have been, you know, acting as agents of ISIS, even though they have no formal connection, they would have been like inspired by ISIS for sure, and that's what it, you know, and that whole, um, that we, you know, we've seen that narrative play out.
0: And so a lot of what you do in your work, both with publishing this book, and you've worked on a couple different films, you work as a TV writer. Um, I'm not sure if there's a medium you don't work in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mining. Mining I don't work in. <laughs> you don't work much in the mining industry. But besides that, it seems like you're involved in, in pretty much every form of making media. And a lot of that work is so important because when you're the person behind the camera telling those stories, or when you're the person in the writer's room of the TV show, writing those stories, you bring your own identities to help frame those stories and change the language that we use and the change the way that people are represented. Do you feel like, um, do you feel like bolstered by the work that you've done? And like, yes, our media climate is getting better and representation is getting better. Or does it feel like you're carving out this little niche, but mostly you're banging your head against a wall?
1: um you know i think um there's something about the entertainment business that's like you know they just are weeding people out for years before they give anyone an opportunity so that's part of that is just the nature of the business uh that you're supposed to bang your head against a wall for a really long time before you get to start banging your head against some a soft uh thing and um so that's I think partially the business, but also, you know, I do. I mean, I think things are getting better. like I, I like to point out that um that for for a long time, we just had the Mindy killing um, the Mindy project. Uh, and then we had a two hundred percent increase in brown shows because then Aziz Ansari had a show. So um, <laughs> it's still only two shows, you know, but it's better than nothing. You know what I mean? I'll take it. Uh, and and I think that there is like a, a hunger for it, and now we're seeing, we're even seeing like a capitalist imperative, you know, there's um, money reasons for you to make a show more diverse It just because it makes more money. You should make make media uh, that has, you know, female leads like Scandal and, and Grey's Anatomy. And these shows, they make more money than other shows. So like even if you just like hate the idea of diversity but love the idea of money bags, um, you know, <laughs> that should be enough motivation for you. To, to flip the switch.
0: That was Nagin Farsat. She's currently touring the country talking about her book, How to Make White People Laugh.